0: We're going to look this morning at carrying on from where we've been in Galatians, but I'm taking a small detour. So you're recording, Nick. Uh, I want to t- talk this morning, call this message this morning, The Gospel and the Supremacy of Christ. The Gospel and the Supremacy of Christ. And we're going to read a story out of, Acts, uh, out of Mark chapter 9 to start with. And um, just to set the scene, Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes down and he's uh, with his disciples on this amazing story. Happens. I'm going to read out of, the, out of the NIV just because probably most of you have that translation. And it says in verse 14 of Mark chapter 9, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Our oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help him. If you can, Jesus said, Everything is possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had got indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the power of the gospel. We want to thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. We want to thank you, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. And, Lord, we recognize this morning it's only your gospel that can set people free. We recognize this morning, Lord, that your gospel, it frees us from sin. It frees us from disease. frees us from oppression. frees us ultimately from death. And, Lord, there's so much more we need to learn. There's so much more we need to understand there's so much more we need to move into and experience by the power of your Holy Spirit living in us, changing us, transforming us, working through us. Lord, we know you can do anything. We know that you want to move. We know that your heart is towards all men. Uh, Lord, we know that you have compassion, immeasurable, immeasurable compassion for the lost and broken of, of this planet. But Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us in our unbelief. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would help us to see things as you see things. We, help, but we pray, Lord, that you would transform us from the inside out. We pray, Lord, that you would open the word to us this morning. We want to be changed through the washing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a powerful story, isn't it? It's an amazing story of drama and power. And it's thrilled me personally since I first heard my dad preach it many, many years ago, uh, as a young boy. And it's always gripped me this story, and uh, the context of Jesus having been on the Mount of Transfiguration, come down, and immediately we see a demonstration of the kingdom of God and the gospel breaking open someone's life and setting them free. And that's ultimately what we want: is to see people set free from the power and oppression of the devil. We need the pureness of the gospel, we need the power of the gospel, we need the gospel to come to this community and to this nation. And as we've been preaching out of Galatians, trying to understand something of what the gospel is, I want to kind of launch off that this morning. We're still going to be studying Galatians over the next while, but how do we evangelize? How do we share? How do we we talk about what Christ has done for us into the community that's going to have an impact? Because we live in a nation in crisis. We live in the Western world, which is in crisis. Why do I say that? Well, because the, the world in which we live is a postmodern culture. We've talked about that, uh, something of that over the last six months. But that postmodernism that's pervading our culture means that the way that we minister and the way that we evangelize cannot remain the same as the way we've done it for the last 150 years. It's got to change. And so, how do we take the truth of Galatians the thing that we've been learning about and soaking ourselves in. How do we communicate that? And I want to share some some thoughts with you this morning. 1959, Martin Lord Jones from Westminster Chapel preached a series of messages out of this portion in Mark chapter 9 where he took this picture and he made some points out of it. And I want to major on one little thing. We're not going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and uh, how God wants to release people. I want to just focus in on that little phrase that Jesus says at the end. He says, this kind can only come out by prayer. This kind. And I want to focus on that little thing, of this kind. What what does that mean? Well, Lloyd-Jones painted a picture and he said this. Basically what he said was that Jesus was saying to them that this kind of demon could not come out by your ordinary way of doing ministry. The things that you've always done, the Practice tried, and tested principles of your ministry, and the disciples, they couldn't cast this demon out as they had been doing before. This kind needed to come out a different way. And so Jones says this. He says this, and I'm quoting his, his message. He says, Here, in this boy, I see the modern world. And in the disciples, I see the church of God. I see a great difficulty and difference between today and 200 years ago, Or even a hundred years ago. The difference in the early times was that men and women were in a state of apathy. They were more or less in a state of sleep. There was no general denial of Christian truth. It was just that the people did not trouble to practice it. All that you had to do was to waken them up and rouse them. But the question is, is this still the same today? What does... This kind mean. It seems that the problem facing us today is much deeper and more desperate than before. The very belief in God has virtually gone. The average man today believes that belief in God and religion and salvation is an incubus on human nature throughout the centuries. Now, that word incubus is interesting. I'm I'm still quoting his sermon. What an incubus is is a male demon, and a male demon that comes upon woman and impregnates them. That's what an incubus is. So what he's saying is that many people see religion like that. It's like this oppressive thing that comes on people, all right? And he asks the question again. He says, what does this kind mean? He says, it's no longer a question of immorality. This has become an amoral or non-moral society. And I was reflecting on that this week and just thinking, look at the... Look, look at the um, MPs at the moment. What's the whole debate? The whole debate is, well, actually, they're playing within the rules. They say they're playing within the rules, but the heart of what they're doing is immoral. The heart of what they're doing is to get as much as they can out of the system and doing it with taxpayers' money. So we're not just talking about the law here. We're talking about something far deeper than that. He goes on to say, the very category of morality is not recognized. The power that the disciples had was good power. But it was, it was able to do good work to cast out feeble demons. But it was of no value to them for the case of this boy. What Jesus was saying to them was, the demon is too deep for your ordinary ways of working and doing ministry. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that's what we face. The Western society in which we are living right now has become a mission field again. The greatest challenge facing us is how to evangelize a society now that is largely not even post-Christian. Well, it used to be Christian and it's been exposed to a whole lot of what Christianity believes. It's no longer that anymore. Much has been eroded. Much has been eroded in our culture, in our lives. It's like, I want to use this... um, Illustration of an inoculation. I think much of the Western world has been inoculated against Christianity. What I mean by that? Example, injustice has still flourished where Christianity has been strong. And if you think Martin Luther King in the 60s, most of where he campaigned for racial equality was in the Bible Belt in the South of America. For those of you that, like me, were born in South Africa, apartheid thrived in a community that culturally was Christian and justified its apartheid from from the Bible. That's the truth, largely. But the good news is this, that over a period of time what was still the Christian understanding began to rise in the community and Christians began to say, actually, no, this does not measure up to what the Bible says. And it was Christians who actually said, no, no, these things have to change to come back into line with what Christ has taught. That's very interesting to me because, you see, slavery didn't end by the campaigning of Islamists. Right now in the world, most of slavery is still... Still practiced by Islamic people. In the whole, in the north, north of Africa, it's practiced mo- mostly by Muslims. Why? Because there's no transforming theology underneath to bring them back to justice, as there is in the Christian faith. So, I want to say some of our societies become inoculated against Christianity. It's like they've seen a Christian culture, they've seen things that have happened in Christian culture, and they say, well, actually, we've tried that, it's not so hot, it doesn't work. Also, in a society like ours, we have two extremes. We have a nominal, mild, apathetic Christianity on the one hand, and on the other, we have a separatist, legalistic Christianity on the other. And I'm sure if we were to go around this room and I was to ask you, what do you think true Christian faith means? None of us would say, well, it's an apathetic, nominal worldview, and none of us would say it's a legalistic worldview, but the reality is those two extremes... We see in our society and it inoculates people against the real thing. And so what I've been trying to do over the last while as we've preached and the other guys that have been preaching with us is to go back to the Scripture and say, out of the, the, let's root ourselves in Christ again. What does justification by faith mean? What is the true gospel of Christ that we can bring people back to that and point people back to that? That's why we're studying Galatians. And what Lloyd-Jones concludes in his sermon in Mark, out of Mark chapter 9 is that what we need is a comprehensive new strategy as churches to reach a lost and a dying world. We do not just need to change our evangelistic programs. And I want to agree. I want to say absolutely amen to that. Tim Keller quotes a, a writer called Richard Fletcher, and he wrote a book called The Barbarian Conversion. And in it, he looks at how Christians evangelized Europe from 500 to 1500 AD. That culture at that time, large chunks of Europe were absolutely pagan. They had no reference to anything Christian in their worldview, in their culture, in their thinking. They had no Christian understanding of God, of sin, of trust, of ethics. There was no, uh, none of that. And so, in that context, evangelism had to be seen in a long-term framework, and as you can see, it's over a thousand years. And eventually, after during that period, eventually, over time, nearly everyone born in Europe was born into a culture that was at least intellectually Christian, at least, and people were educated in a basic framework or Christian worldview. And so there was, they had some kind of view of God, they had some kind of view of the soul, the body, spirit, some kind of view of sin, death, punishment. They had uh, explained something of the Ten Commandments and some exposition, um, exposure at least, to the, the Scripture. And so in that context, evangelism becomes a little simpler because what was needed was some kind of campaign or some kind of program to wake people up to what they'd already been exposed to And basically make real in them or seek to bring them to individual repentance and faith. That's what evangelists did. And I think still now that's largely how people understand evangelism. It's that kind of understanding. It's uh, evangelism and how we think about it has shrunk to programs. With most of the emphasis being on individual experiences. How we experience Christ. And some of these things could include things like preaching and worship. I believe in preaching and worship, absolutely. One-on-one witnessing, small groups, revival meetings. Interesting to me, as I've been reading a little more church history, you know, in the Scripture, revival came and the people found about it afterwards. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down and we describe that as revival. Charles Finney introduced this thing of revival meetings. And so we try and come together to create revival. I want to say, it doesn't work that way. You can't manufacture revival. And we're going to talk about what revival is today. Revival is is something internal that happens in individuals, and then over a period of time they get together and this thing spontaneously combusts. You cannot create revival. We try And as Daniel once said, if you try long enough to make the Spirit come, some Spirit is going to come, not necessarily the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I believe in preaching. I believe in worship. But I also agree with Lloyd-Jones. I I believe we should get together. We should evangelize. We should preach. I believe in all of that. But I also believe Lloyd-Jones is right when he says this, that this kind will not come out with our ordinary methods. We need a radical overhaul. Well, you could argue with me, and you could say, well, I I disagree. You know, in North and South America, for example, some places of Africa, the evangelical church is growing in leaps and bounds, and I'm not denying that. But what we face in Europe right now is not that. And this is where everything started. (laughs) This is where Paul preached. You go around Turkey and Asia Minor. Do you want to point me any churches there of meaning and significance? There are none. And we face additional challenge. As our communities are becoming more urbanized and more liberal, it's harder to evangelize in ways that worked in the past. That's certainly true of where we live here in London. I know we're not right in central London. We're on the outskirts. But the urbanized community of London is increasingly liberal. It's increasingly multicultural, which I thoroughly enjoy. And it's a wonderful thing. But we have to. We, we've got to find some other ways in God to, to ma- you know, in the prayer meeting this morning, Trevor said, "In God we live and move and have our being." I want to say the church needs to find how to live and move and have its being in Christ in a postmodern world, and we can't keep on doing it like we've been doing it. I agree. There are mega churches that are sprouting up in major cities all over the world. That's, I don't have a problem with that. But what is indisputable, and if you go on the internet and look at any number of websites, you can see that when surveys have been done and people have quoted their religious preference, there's the, the vast majority that is growing is people who put down, I have no religious preference, none. There's a whole secular humanist section of our community that is right before our eyes and they have no frame of reference. This demon is too deep for our ordinary methods of doing ministry. And as we live in a community and a world that's inclusive, in, uh, increasingly secular and pluralistic, especially here in Europe, the methodologies that we've used have to change. It was, I just want to give a couple of examples. In the, in, the, in the 19th century, Finney and others started these revival meetings, and that perhaps culminated in Billy Graham's kind of really powerful ministry in the 50s and 60s, and I don't have a problem with that. It worked. We've had other training problems to equip people to share the gospel. There's, more recently, everyone's been exposed to the Alpha Course. We've had models like the Seeker Sensitive model, and many of those things have been extremely helpful. They've produced much fruit. But I want to say to you that I do not believe that there is a magic bullet. One thing that's going to do it. I do not believe that. And as we have been talking over this since uh, August of last year about this church and transitioning this church, we are still continuing to be in a major transition. And so my comment this morning when I say the whole church needs to change, I'm not just addressing our local body. I'm saying, I'm meaning that for the church needs to change. All of us, the whole body of Christ. Because the postmodern world uh, face, we face three major challenges and here they are. There's a truth problem. There's a problem around truth. All claims of truth in the modern world are not no longer seen as corresponding to reality, but people think that those who claim they have truth want to have power over them. That's why they're suspicious of it. So if you claim that you have truth, it's like you want to dominate me and I'm not going to have that. I have a right to make up my own mind about what I believe. Okay? Secondly, there's a guilt problem. Sigmund Freud was a... You all know Sigmund Freud. There were many jokes about all those kind of things. But he basically, what he introduced into thinking in the modern uh, society was that actually guilt is just a neurosis. It's just a neurosis. So... You don't need to feel guilty. All you do, if you get angry, you don't need, you don't need to repent necessarily. You just go through a course of anger management You'll to manage your anger. And so now, when we preach truth into that context, people don't automatically feel, feel that sense of conviction or guilt come upon them that they want to respond to. They would just say, Well, I don't feel guilty about that anymore. That's not my problem. That's a problem as we preach. And thirdly, there's a meaning problem. There's a, I don't know if you've seen um, on Natural Geographic, I always kind of ch- are interested to see what they're showing. There have been a plethora of programs about texts that have been discovered. So-called ancient texts, and they always have like a very dramatic title. And when you listen to the program, they actually say very little. But it's all, under my. how can we trust the text? How can we trust what is written? How can we make sure that we know that we're interpreting it Right. And so there's a meaning problem. There's a truth problem. There's a guilt problem. There's a meaning problem. So how do we get the gospel across? How do we take the truth of Galatians and Romans? And how do we unpack that and preach it in a life-giving way that's going to impact this postmodern world in which we live? How do we do that? Well, I want to make six suggestions over the next two weeks. I'm going to try and introduce two this morning, very briefly. And we'll look at these over the next period of time. And to help me in this quest, can you turn with me to the book of Jonah, please? are you there guys it's at the back of the Bible page 781 in the Old Testament in my NIV translation I'm sure you all uh, know the story of Jonah it's an amazing story I'm just going to read a couple of portions that I want to reference. Chapter 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great, the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Uh, the call comes to Jonah. He's going in the opposite direction. We know what happens. Gets on the boat. Storm comes gets thrown overboard because he recognizes that he's the guilty party and uh, gets thrown overboard and the belly of the fish, the belly of the whale, he lands up there and while he's in the belly of the whale in in Jonah chapter 2, he prays this amazing prayer. We're not going to read the whole thing, but... I'm going to go to verse 8, chapter 2, and it says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Oh, isn't that amazing? Even the Old Testament, even the Old Covenant in in this. Yeah, we have the grace of God. We have the gospel being preached in the belly of a whale by Jonah. Isn't that amazing? And that is amazing. The grace that could have been theirs they forfeit. But, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Here's a little nutshell. You want to talk about the gospel in advance? Here it is. Salvation comes from the Lord. That is it. The gospel has been preached. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's been preached in the belly of a whale. And so he gets spat out and then he goes to Nineveh. And he preaches. And the people listen, and they come to repentance. (laughs) You would think, Jonah, prophet, you would be glad, Jonah. And what does he do? He's up the tree. He's angry. He's like sulking like a little child. And in chapter 4, it says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry, and he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? It's like he's waving his finger saying, God, I told you, I told you that you would have mercy on these people. And he's really angry. And we know the the whole thing, and then he sits under the sun, and he really socks, and God kind of comes and speaks to him. So what's the point of Jonah? Well, I think it is an absolutely incredible picture for us, and can be helpful to us. And here's the first thing I want to say. The first thing I feel like we need to get back to as the church, the body of Christ, is putting the theology of the gospel right back at the center of everything that we do. And that's part of the transition that I've, in my own life, the journey that I'm on. The gospel of Christ becoming once again the center of everything. It says here, it says Jonah chapter one, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The gospel comes to Jonah. And our theology, how we understand God, everything that we do, needs to be centered around the gospel. And there are things in my own life that I'm saying, God, I centered around other things. Not church planting. That's a good thing. What an incredible thing to plant. But our our theology can't be centered around that. It must be centered around the good news of Christ. And everything of our theology needs to be an exposition of the gospel, especially in this world in which we live. We've got to get back to exposing and looking for the gospel in every area when we read the scripture. I was just reading, you know, most of Paul's letters are, th- are theology. And then as a result of the theology, he says, well, now demonstrate your love for Christ. Demonstrate that the gospel is rooted in you by behaving like this. So because God has touched your body and, uh, and, and you love him and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, keep yourself sexually pure. I mean, it's a, it's a different mindset, It's not following laws. It's saying, because of the love of Christ in me, because of what he's done in me, out of obedience, I live a life that honors him because I am so grateful, Lord, that you've touched my life. R.T. Kendall, what did he say? He said, Sanctification is a theology of gratitude. Yes, Lord, I'm so grateful. So why is it so important? When when it says the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, it doesn't mean he comes up with some little moral code. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a radical, life-changing message about the mercy of God and about the justice of God, about the severity of God, and about the grace of God, all in one. That's what it is. It's a life-changing message. And as we preach into this world, there's so much... Misconception, there's so much misunderstanding with our mates about what Christianity is about. Just think about it for a while. The greatest scandal in the Roman Catholic Church over the last 50 years has been about sexual abuse to children. Do you think people are not confused when they see that? Got to get back to the gospel, not religion, not church stuff, the gospel. What is the gospel? And I'm shouting. <laughs> but secondly, so people need a frame of reference and their frame of reference has to be the gospel. Okay? Secondly, the gospel is like the hub of a wheel. Like the, the hub at the center and everything else goes out from the hub. So our social action is because of the gospel. Not because we just want to do social action. It's because of the gospel. Our evangelizing is because of the gospel. <laughs> All of that is because the gospel is the core out of everything that everything moves out from. The gospel of a merciful, loving, glorious Father God interested in others, so interested in others, He gives Himself in love, He gives Himself in creation, He gives Himself in redemption and recreation, and that's the core doctrine, uh, the core of every doctrine of the Bible. Every doctrine. It's the core of our doctrine about God, humanity, salvation, the church, everything. The gospel has to be at the center. And we've talked a lot about it in the last... But now this is the second thing I just want to say out of Jonah. Which for me was just, again, a wonder to God reminding me of this. The second thing that I, I feel like the church has to come back to is realizing the gospel personally. What I mean by that? I want to try and unpack it a little with those three little verses that we read. In, in, when, when, when the word of God comes to Jonah, he runs in the opposite direction. It says he goes to gets on the ship headed for Tarshish. He goes there. Now initially when you read that, you think, well, that's just out of fear. I mean, he's kind of a little intimidated. He doesn't want to go and preach. He's kind of wrestling with insecurity, perhaps like all of us do. But actually... When you read chapter 4, it's not that. Because chapter 4 says this, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? You know what he had in his heart? He had a prejudice against the Ninevites. He didn't like them. That's why he didn't want to go. He didn't like them. He didn't want God's mercy to come to them. There was a self-righteousness in him that he, he didn't want to go. He was happy that they would perish. You know what Jonah hadn't realized? Jonah still hadn't come, this prophet of God, this man who was bringing the good news, he still hadn't realized for himself that he was nothing more than a sinner saved by the sheer grace of God. He hadn't realized that himself. Story this week, we had a thing during the weekend, a guy got up and said he, he, a friend of his was in a hotel, and these three drunk guys came down, it was late at night, they came down the passage and they were kind of trying to hold each other up and they were all equally drunk, and as the one fell down in the middle, he stepped over and he kind of found himself saying, oh thank God that's not me, and instantaneously God arrested him and he felt God say to him, that's you except for the grace of God on your life. only difference between him and you is me, basically. We all got to realize that we are sinners saved by the sheer grace of God. This great prophet Jonah, he knows it in his head. He knows the theology of it. He understands it completely, but it has not yet dropped into his heart that it's changed the way that he lives. And Martin Luther, who we are going to reference because he was such a profound man in terms of this is the Reformation. He said this. He said, The purpose of ministry was, is not only to make the gospel clear. So, you know, anyone involved in ministry, that's all of us. It's not only to make the gospel clear, but it's also to beat into your people's heads and your own continually what the gospel is. And as I read that, I thought, Yeah, that's true. Because, yeah, we have Jonah. He's got all the theology in the world, but it's not yet here. So, just as we've been preaching through Galatians, you might, amen, everything about the justification of faith, you might say, I'm beginning to understand it, and that's why we've been soaking ourselves in Galatians, and I want to say that is a beautiful and a wonderful thing, and we celebrate that. Can I say this to you? If that is not accompanied by a radical, concrete, humble love towards everybody, including our enemies, I don't think we've fully understood that we are sinners saved by grace. also, If that theological revival, if you want to call it, is not accompanied by a growing confidence in us and a joy in us, even in difficult times, I don't think we've fully comprehended that we are all sinners saved by grace. Well, what if we realize, actually, I don't have humility, I don't have joy, and I don't have a confidence, particularly when things are not going well. Well, what can we do? Well, I want to say, I think we need to stay at a place instead of trying to move on from that place. We need to stay at that place until God speaks to us and revelation comes, rather than moving on, until the penny drops, until it comes. And it, like so many others, like John Wesley, you can say he was strangely warmed on the inside and he suddenly knew the grace of God. I think that even in preaching, he knew it. Even you might feel like you're shaking the tree over and over and over again. Well, shake the tree until the fruit falls. We've got to remain in that place that God can so do a work in us that more of His Spirit comes out. And until we do that, until we allow God to work in us like that, despite our doctrine, despite our celebration of these things, we will continue to be as scared and as selfish and as oversensitive and as insensitive and undisciplined as everybody else. We will. And this actually is a good news message. I hope you're getting it. See, that's what Jonah was like. He knew about the gospel, he, and if he knew it as deeply as he thought he knew it, he would have never been as hostile and superior towards Nineveh as he was, if he really knew it in his Noah. And so the Noah, you know, your Noah's here. The Noah, your Noah's on the inside. You know in your Noah. That's why We need that kind of revelation, that you just know that you know. And so what does God, God has to do? He takes him into the belly of a whale, To get him to go back to the foundation of what he says. He believes. How many times don't we fight the belly of the whale experience? This can't be God. This thing I'm going through, it can't be you, Lord. This is the devil. We're rebuking the devil. Actually, no, no, no. God's allowed us to be swallowed up by the belly of a whale. He's trying to get to speak to us so that we too can come to a place like Jonah. We say salvation really does belong to God. See, it wasn't, a new dis- it wasn't a new discovery for Jonah. He already knew it, but there was a deeper revelation and there was a deeper wonder and there was a deeper awe in, in the truth of the gospel that he already knew. He suddenly... Ah. Can I say this? I think if we, understand, if, if we think that we understand the gospel, we don't really. <laughs> I think if, we, if we, we feel like we haven't even begun to un- truly understand the gospel we do. That's what I think. Because that wonder needs to grow in us. So I believe it's, a, it's important. We, we must understand the theology of the gospel, but that, that is not going to reach the world. That alone is not going to reach the world. I think today what people are very sensitive about is phoniness and inconsistency. We can preach a transforming gospel. We can preach that God has come to transform people's lives. And unless people see a radically transformed life in us, they're going to say, what you preach, what you are, doesn't match up. So absolutely, let's be proclaimers of gospel truth. But let's also be prepared to allow God to work in us so that by His Spirit there's greater holiness, there's greater practical grace, there's greater character, there's greater virtue, the people can believe the message because they see it living in us. Tim Keller says a wonderful thing. He says this, Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore, I am accepted by God. The gospel operates on the principle, I am, sec- I am accepted through the grace, the costly grace of God, therefore, I obey. So, there might be two of you sitting next to each other right now in the church, side by side, you come every Sunday, and maybe you're trying to live the same way. You try to be effective in your Christian walk. You're trying to pray, read your Bible, minister, be active in the church, all those good and wonderful things. but you can' be motivated by an entirely different place, from an entirely different place. You see, religion moves you to do what you do out of fear and out of insecurity and out of self-righteousness, and the gospel moves you to what you do out of grateful joy in God himself. That's the difference. That's good news to me. It really is good news. So times, can I just go back then to talking about revival. Times of revival are really just seasons where nominal, spiritually sleepy Christians, apathetic Christians, operating out of religion, operating out of perhaps a Phariseeism in their life, just trying to do the right thing. They wake up to the wonder of the gospel. They wake up. And they get it. God, it's about your saving grace in my life. They get it. And it spontaneously combusts in people's lives. And then more and more people get together, and we have revival. So, I agree with Lloyd-Jones. What he was really saying is that we need the only means to communicate this thing effectively in the postmodern world is really Revival, And I'm not defining revival as something we need to do and implement. I'm defining revival as a sense of wonder inside of me about the grace of God and the mercy of God and the justice of God. And that begins to burn. And when individuals are revived, revival will come. Peter says an amazing thing in 1 Peter 1 verse 12. He says, in fact, the angels long to look on the gospel. Isn't that incredible? Angels are longing to look on the gospel. They wonder. I'll just quote it to you. It says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Man, that's wonderful. The gospel is amazing grace. The gospel is amazing love. And Jesus is at the center of all things. And as we, I believe God is going to bless this church as we seek to be more effective in winning the lost. And I think we have to ask him, Lord, help me to grasp some of these things by the power of the spirit. Because once they're in us, we will live differently. Not because we're trying to live differently, but because the life of God is just bubbling from the inside out and transforming us. Amen. Let's uh, ask the musicians to come. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to worship together. Father, we're just so grateful for what you're doing in us, so grateful for your, the truth of your word and the truth of the gospel, and Lord, we just pray right now, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here, we know that you are here, we ask, Lord, now that you confirm your word. With signs following, Lord, we pray you would confirm your word in us, that you would change us, and Lord, as we worship now, we ask that you would come. That that fire in us would begin to burn in a radical way, Father. I pray that in, uh, your word says in Acts chapter 2 that it was visible upon people. There was tongues of fire upon them. God, we want tongues of fire to be burning within us. Passion for who you are. Passion for your name. That you would revive us personally. Lord, I pray just as we respond in worship now, that you'd come and do that in individuals' hearts and in, individuals' lives. We trust you for that in in, in the powerful name of Jesus. We love you this morning, Lord.